Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and this week my guest is Alistair Tate. Alistair is also a senior writer with GolfWeek and GolfWeek.com based over in the UK. And Alistair and I had a great conversation about Danny Willett returning to winning form on the European Tour. We talked also about John Rahm. We talked about many of the, the storylines and the big things happening on the European Tour. We also talked about slow play. Unfortunately, slow play has not solved itself. And Alistair was able to tell me a little bit about what the European Tour is trying to do to combat slow play. And we finally talked about the great time you can have with your dog out on the golf course. Alistair takes his dog out on the golf course twice a week. So here we go. Hey, golf fans, listen up. If you are looking for other awesome sport podcasts, the USA Today Network has got you covered. If you want to hear all about people getting kicked punched and beat up if you are into mixed martial arts then check out mma junkie radio if you want to stay up with all the topics that are trending in the world of sports and hear people speaking intelligently then listen to our for the win podcast which is available on itunes stitcher and other popular podcast apps as a matter of fact you can see all of the usa today network podcasts including podcasts for the nfl and the nba by going to podcast.usatoday.com And now I'd like to welcome Alistair Tate, my colleague Alistair Tate, who I never get to see often enough. Allie, welcome to the United States. Welcome to the Four Press Podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Excellent. We're, my first one. Your first one. But you must do podcasts. and have never been, done a podcast. You've before. never done a podcast. So, so this is the first. Yeah. Here we are. But I'm you've a, done lots of radio interviews, yes, lots of other things. Yes. I'm a rookie podcaster. A rook at the podcast yes. game. But, but actually, the veteran member of the Golf Week staff, if I'm not mistaken, how many years have you been with Golf Week? 25. I'm waiting for my gold watch. I think you're going to wait a while. I got to. I got to tell you, <laughs> they don't do gold watches anymore for they 25 sh- years. In this business, they certainly should do a gold exactly. watch if you've done it for. How did you get started? Uh, so I worked for Today's Golfer Magazine, Golf Monthly Magazine. I met a previous editor on a junket to Dubai. They've seen her, mm-hmm. and I introduced them to a lot of uh, European tour players, potential Ryder Cup players like mm-hmm. Steve Richardson, Paul Broadhurst. Guys like that, Peter Baker, he interviewed them for a feature he was doing. When he got the job at uh, Golf Week, he phoned mm-hmm. me up and he said, hey, would like to work for us? And I started part-time, then went full-time, and here I am 25 years later. And this is going to sound foolish. Was, was golf your first gig? Or what, what were you writing about before you started no, golf week? No, I actually wrote about computers. I was a computer operator. Really? I just had a love of golf. Um, the first job I had, uh, the editor was Scottish, so I put on my best Scottish accent, mm. and he gave me the job, and that's how I got my start, and 1989. Are, and you were originally from? Scotland. And where in Scotland? Uh, Loch Lomond. Which is close to, for our listeners here? Glasgow. Glasgow. So by, by Yon Bonnie Banks and by Yon Bonnie Braes, it used to hold the Scottish Open. Mm. It held the 2000 Solheim Cup. 
So when it wasn't called the Bonnie Bonnie Banks, it was called the Boggy Boggy Banks because it was very, very wet. And how did you get started? Did you always play golf? Is that for I mean, it's like a being a Scotsman, a, a rite of passage? You're born into this world, and you, you've basically got a, a mashy niblick in, in hand, or how did it work out for you? No, I was a football player, soccer. soccer Thank you. Player, Thank right? you very much. No worries. Football player, and I uh, didn't take take the game up until I was 21. Mm-hmm. And the thing that got me hooked was I couldn't play it. I could do every other sport. This is great. I suck. Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, well, that's what got me hooked because, you know, I went from Scotland to Canada with my family, emigrated. Yeah. And was introduced to baseball, football, lacrosse, Mm -hmm. hockey, you name it. And I could do them reasonably well. But golf, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And it was one of those things, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. And here I am, what, 30 years later saying, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. Still trying to get it. (laughs) You and pretty much everybody not named Tiger Woods later are in the same predicament. So. Alistair, for those of you who may not be familiar with his work, and if you're not, you should be. Um, Alistair, being based in the UK, is the European, basically the European outpost for Golf Week magazine and for GolfWeek.com. And I guess I will play the role of the ignorant American in this conversation, which isn't really stretching myself too far. Um, but what are some of the big stories? What are the things that are going on now in, in Europe and on the European tour? What are people talking about? Well, I think last week was a big week because it was the start of the Ryder Cup points process. Mm. Which you know, Danny, well, the, PG, the BMW PGA Championship, which is worth seven million dollars, a Rolex Series event, which Danny Willett won. John Ram came second. Yep, and that was the start of the points process for 2020 and Whistling Straits. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a huge story because, well, everybody knows Danny Willett won the 2016 Masters, fell off the face of the earth, came back last year and won the DP World Championship Dubai, and everybody yeah. said, "What well, was that? A flash in the pan, a bit of a fluke," and I think he's backed it up, you know, with this win, which was really impressive. Him and him and Ram started tied for the final in the final round. Yeah, and he beat him by I think it was two shots. So a huge, huge win. So the bits of it that I was able to pick up on Golf Channel coverage, Ram looked fantastic. I mean, he he looked really studly. I, I saw Saturday morning he tees off on the very first hole, which is it went with a, a downhill par four, and some of the players are hitting fairway wood or or a metal and laying up basically onto a top shelf and leaving themselves you know, mid iron at the longest in, into into the green. Ron pulled out driver and proceeded to hit one 375. Now, he, he caught the downslope and got a significant amount of, of rollout from that. But 375 is 375, leaving himself an 85-yard pitch shot, basically thereabouts, leaves himself seven feet, makes birdie. And I'm like, well, I can almost change channels at this point. And Willett comes back. You and I talked a little bit about when Danny Willett won um, the Masters in 2016. Of the Brits who were there, he was not the most likely candidate to win that Masters. Is that still correct? I and mean, explain sort of where he was in the pecking order before he wins in 2016 at Augusta National. Because he, he wasn't the one, was he, that we thought we were going to get it? No, but he, he was a good amateur. He was world number one amateur, played in the 2007 Walker Cup. Mm-hmm. And he's always been, shall we say, cocky. Very confident of his, of his abilities, mm-hmm. big belief in himself, and won early on the European Tour. He's won, he's now won seven events, so I think he, he'd, he'd won, what, four events before he won the Masters. So he'd established himself oh, yes. as a pro. He, yes. was, he was a top 15 player in the world when yes. he won. It wasn't totally out of nowhere. No, but a huge belief in himself. Even in amateur golf, he was very, very cocky, very mm-hmm. confident, very assured. So, yes, it did come a bit out, out of the blue. You wouldn't have backed him, except for his family maybe, mm-hmm. but... You know, um, we weren't surprised. Okay. Yeah, weren't but, surprised. But but the thinking would have been Casey, 
Poulter, Rose, F- Rose, yeah. Fleetwood, Garcia, had, yeah. Fleetwood hadn't really no. come onto the scene at, at no. that point, but now we certainly wouldn't be surprised. What happened? Like, what was it? Was he just not ready for it? Or what do you, what do you think happened to Danny Willett after he well, wins the Masters? Well, Danny Willett, I, th- I think he, I think he chased the money. Obviously, the appearance money, the, the endorsements, blah blah blah. Yeah, he changed his swing. He went from say Pete Cowan to Sean Foley, and I think the the swing changes took a long time to bet in. He also got injured. He hurt. I think he was hurt his shoulder, but he was injured for a while. And even last year, you know, when he turned up at um, Wentworth for the BMW PGA Championship, mm-hmm. he was struggling with a bad with, a, with injury, and he was I think he was four hundred sixty second in the world or something. Yeah, like that, from yeah. a high of eighth. Yeah. So he did. He did go through injury and swing problems, and I think those are behind him. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what he does from here on in. Well, obviously, winning the Masters basically gives you an open ticket to schedule whatever you would like. And his world ranking was such that 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 wasn't going to be a problem. But he, as you noted, like his world ranking slipped way down there. I was impressed over the course of the season when he would show up at the PGA Tour that he was there at the Northern Trust and the first leg. He number one, he qualified for the Northern Trust, so so that was established. But then he played well. I mean, it was one of those things that was sort of a background story with Brooks Kepka doing what he did this season and Rory coming on strong. They were, we were really heavy at the top with storylines, but there were plenty of guys, not necessarily in Danny Willett's shoes because he's, he's just fine, but who quietly made their way in and, and Willett was there. It was impressive stuff. Now, does, does Wentworth set up well for him in terms of the horses for courses mentality? Or did, did you sort of see, yeah, I'm not surprised that Danny Willett won at Wentworth. Things have been trending that way and he... Seemed like something that would, was well, going to happen. No, I wouldn't have said he had won this year. He wouldn't have been my pick. Mm-hmm. Like after the flash in the pan in Dubai, we were waiting to see what happened there. But in previous years, yeah, you would have picked him. Mm-hmm. Because he's a strong player, a strong iron player. And I think he led, if I, my stats are correct, he led the field, or he was joint leader in the field of greens and regulations. He hit a lot of greens. I know that I think one. it was That's like correct. 77.8%. He took advantage of greens and rag for yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, one was a tough course. Um, it's even even tougher now since they made changes to it. So to hit that many greens, I mean that that says it all. That's that's why he was up there. What do the Europeans think of John Rahm? And I ask that because obviously being Spanish and growing up there, he was a fantastic amateur player. Comes to the United States, um, and I'm not going to say he's American. He's a proud Spaniard, and he should be. But he's played not exclusively on the U.S. PGA Tour, but but he's here a lot. Yeah. It, what, what is the feeling when a, when a player comes up through there who is establishing themselves as this this guy's going to be somebody and then all of a sudden they start playing in the US. How are that how is that looked upon in Europe? Well, there's a there's a change from the days of Sevi and Ollie, you know, Sevi Balasteros, Jose Maria Lathabal. They played full-time on the European tour. Right. And so they built up a huge following. You know, Rams and Arizona State Boy. He mm-hmm. hasn't been in Spain for a long time. Mm-hmm. And when he does play in Europe, he's only playing a handful of events outside the majors. Yep. So he's not going to get the same love that Seve would have got mm-hmm. or Ollie would have got. Um, so it's going to be interesting. And I think, the, I think the British fans appreciate him, but not in the same way. It's more respect than love. I mean, Seve was loved. He was a god. Yeah. You know, but, but Ram's going to get some respect. Um, powerful player. I mean, what he did in the Ryder Cup last year, he beat Tiger in singles. He was a stud. Yeah, he was huge. Yep. He was, and he's going to be huge in Ryder Cups for years to come. For, unfortunately for the Americans, for a few decades. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that, that's going to determine where he sits among European golf. Obviously, he's loved in Spain. But it's going to determine where he sits amongst European golf fans, how he does in the Ryder Cup. Is there a level of inevitability when it comes to the top European players as they rise up, either going to the United States to play college golf, which is fine, but then they stay. And if they're able to, like, for example, Victor Hovland, yes. um, obviously being from Norway, from Oslo, 
comes here, goes and plays at Oklahoma State, it becomes one of the top amateurs in the world and is basically making the United States home, it would certainly appear. Yeah. Now, he was also at Wentworth, but um, how is that sort of looked upon? Is there this inevitable, like, if you're good enough, you're not going to stay? No, not really, because Alex Noren went to Oklahoma State, mm-hmm. and he's made the European Tours home. So it's, it's kind of horses for courses. You know, um, Paul Casey, obviously, you know, he, he played in the States, Arizona State. Yep. He's lived in the States for a long time. So there isn't, there isn't an, an, um, it's not inevitable, but it just depends on the character. It's but, accepted. Yeah, it's accepted. But they have to go there. They have to play in the, the PGA Tour. You know, the guys, and, and the reason that Keith Pelly, the European Tour chief executive, is trying to put together these, these rich Rolex series events is to keep young guys like, say, Victor Hovland mm-hmm. or Tommy Fleetwood from not staying in the States. Exclusively in the States. Exactly. And, uh, and coming back and supporting their home tour. He's lost the Roses and the Caseys and the Poulters. That generation's already gone. Yeah. They're not going to come back. Exactly. So, So what you're basically saying is that the Pelly and the European Tour are looking at the the folks who are 15 to 22, 23, laying out enough incentives yes. to keep them yeah, the, to keep them coming. Yeah. And so what I, what guys will do is they'll, they'll, they'll play the early part of the, the schedule in Europe, mm-hmm. in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, blah, blah, blah. Um, they'll go to the States, play full-time on the PGA Tour, and come back. Europe at the end of the season. Now the good thing is um, the, the FedEx Cup change has helped a lot. I was going to ask you about how have the changes to the US PGA Tour schedule affected the folks in Europe? Um, hugely. I mean last week's um, strength of field as rated by the official world golf ranking mm-hmm. was 412. Last year it was 283. Last year it was held in May. This year it was September. So with the so FedEx Cup... For, for people who don't understand what those numbers mean, can you give us a little bit of background? What, what does that mean? With strength of field. Yes, correct. Right. So they basically look at the, the players in the field, mm-hmm. and they give the tournament a ranking mm-hmm. based on the players in the field. So last year when Francesco Molinari won, it was 283. This year when Wurt won, because you had guys like Rory, you had Rom, Tony Fino, you had Ram, Casey. you had Casey, Poulter... You had um, Billy, Billy Horschel. Horschel. Billy Horschel came over. Yeah, there Pat- were a few Americans who Patrick came over. Reed. And for years, there was a question mark that people would say, why doesn't this tournament get the top Americans? But in the past, why would they go over? Why would they disrupt their PGA Tour schedule in mm. May to go for a week and then come back again? And that was the problem with the PGA Tour-based Europeans. Mm-hmm. They were reluctant to come back to Europe you know, and, and be jet-lagged and all the travel and all that sort of stuff and disrupt their PGA Tour schedule to go back and play in the, P- in the BMW PGA Championship, even though even though it was the, the European Tour's flagship event. I was going to say, it was the flagship event, yes. and it, but it wasn't a strength of, it, it didn't have an especially strong field. It also had a problem with the course yes. for a long time, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Yeah. Tell people who may not be familiar, the sort of the, the broadly speaking, the story of Wentworth, because well, it's a long and winding road, as yeah. someone once sang. Yeah, so Wentworth is a, it's a long time European Tour venue for the PGA Championship under different sponsors. Mm-hmm. It was called the Burma Road. It held the Ryder Cup in, let's see, 1953? 53, yeah. You were there, but I wasn't. <laughs> no, I wasn't there. <laughs> I was in my, I was, well, I was in somebody's dreams. Somebody, was, somebody was thinking of maybe exactly. a little alley someday, but so, okay. Yeah, and so the European Tour is based there. Right? That's where their headquarters are. And one of the reasons the players came back is there was a, a sort of, um, not blackmail, but a kind of emotional tug from the tour to say, look, you know, this is this, this is needs our, to be good. This is our flagship event. Come back and play. So guys would come back and play, sometimes reluctantly. Right mm. now, they don't have to worry about that. It's a seven million dollar tournament. It's held in September. It doesn't clash with any PGA Tour event. The FedEx Cup. Bob's your uncle. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fantastic. So, 
walk me through what the rest of the European tour schedule is going to be like. I mean, as you sort of said, like you've now had the flagship event, but the European tour schedule for, for the season is not over. No. Now, the US PGA Tour is playing on the West Coast. We're taping this on Sun, excuse me, on Tuesday afternoon. The Safeway Championship is going to be taking place in Napa, California, starting later this week. But you guys actually have big-time yeah. premier events yeah. that, are, that are coming up for it, don't and you? It, and it culminates with, obviously, the DP Tour World Championship in Dubai, mm-hmm. which is also a Rolex Year event, Cirex event. Um, it's preceded by, let's see, uh, South Africa and Turkey, also Rolex Series events. And it determines who's going to be European Tour number one. Now, this year in Dubai, um, they've doubled up on the first place money. Really? Yes. So well, it means that, it means that more guys are in the mix okay. to win the race to Dubai, which is our FedEx Cup. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, it's and you've got a lot of guys. You know, Shane Larry, John Ram, Danny Will, I think's moved to six. Rory's in there. There's a lot of guys that can that can be vying for that position. And going into the week, it's almost anybody's ball game because of doubling up the first place prize money. So a lot of people listening to this may not understand that players can be a member of the PGA Tour as well as the European yes. Tour and there have been players, I'm not sure, I think Rory did it one year, and I think Luke Donald may have done it. I'm, I may be missing this, but I'm pretty sure. Where they can win the Order of Merit as well as the money title in the United States. How does that work, and how is that sort of looked upon where there are enough events that sort of double up? Yeah. For example, the Open Championship counts as both. Yeah. What, what is the minimum number these days a player has to play in order to maintain European Tour status? Four. <laughs> four four regular tour events and the open championship is going to be one no 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 four regular oh, regular Euro- tour events okay yes. so, so the majors are, are so, excluded from this yes, so last week was a regular european what i would call a regular european right tour okay event. it wasn't a major mm-hmm. and it wasn't a wgc okay right because you get basically what, because seven. that would that would be it for the elite yeah. players they would never have to do anything exactly so, now did, but they also inc- encourage players to play their national yes, championships yes so if they play in their home country um, that's a kind of stipulation. So Molinaro will go back and play in the Italian Open, right? Which is also that's coming up Rolex Year event, mm-hmm. and um, it's worth seven million dollars, and it'll get a strong field. So yeah, there's only four tournaments, so it's it's a breeze mm-hmm. for PGA Tour based players. It's also a, a breeze for American. PGA players. Well, when you think about, so with me in Connecticut, if I were to go to Boston or New York, I can fly in about five hours overnight, give yeah. or take six, and I can be in Edinburgh, I can be in London, I can be in Paris. And yeah, okay, the time change isn't great, but that's not that much different than going to San Francisco or Los Angeles. Yeah, and I know that that's been a, a big appeal in the travel segment, but it it's when you're flying private, as yeah. many of these lads can do, yeah. it's not the worst thing in the world, no. and you get over jet lag. You just but it, deal with it. But it's not it's not those that, that determine where they play it. It's more the Australia, New Zealand, mm. South Africa. That's that's the one. You know, if, if they're based in Orlando, based here in Orlando, and they can fly out to Phoenix or any golf course, any mm-hmm. any tour stop, they're, they're back on Sunday night. Yeah. If they go to China, if they go to Australia, they're not back on Sunday night. So why wouldn't they base themselves in Orlando or Arizona? It, it, it makes tour? a lot of sense. You're paying no state income tax in either Florida or Arizona. Exactly. Um, and I know that the guys who play pr- almost exclusively in the U.S., they look at Texas. Dallas is, is a place because you're, you're centrally located in the United States and you have the same favorable tax situation. Who's a player that, that I don't know about yet or that people who follow golf pretty much exclusively in the U.S. that we don't know about yet who's going to be known in the next year or two, who's somebody that's on I, your radar? I would think Bob McIntyre. Bob McIntyre. Tell me about Bob McIntyre. So Bob McIntyre comes from Oban in Scotland, mm-hmm. right? Which is very, 
he, he, he belongs to a club called Glen Cruton, which is very sort of working class. It's not fancy. It's not no country club. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's left-hander. He like played, him already. He played shinty. What's shinty? You know shinty? I don't. Shinty is basically ice hockey, or hockey, sorry, on a field with a stick and a ball and goalposts. It's basically nuts. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it is. It's, Gee, it, there's a stretch. The and, Scots and, playing and a game that's nuts. And there's no pads, okay? They, they go at it, and it's very, very violent and very rough and tough, and he played shinty. That's where he got the kind of hand-eye coordination okay. to play golf. He, he came up through the, the Scottish ranks. He played on the 2017 Walker Cup. Mm-hmm. He beat Cameron Champ in singles, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. he's, got, he's, he's got some attitude is what I like about him. Well, if he's going to play some you know, out-of-the-middle-ages <laughs> Game yeah. of Thrones game up in Scotland, then playing at these posh you know, country clubs has got to be just yeah. nothing. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's got some attitude. And he, I think he's had three seconds this year. And he's been talked about as a potential Ryder Cup player. Right. Next year, Patrick Heron, I mean, Patrick Heron was asked, he was probably asked by a Scottish journalist, but he was asked about McIntyre's chances and said, yeah, he's, he's, he might even be Rookie of the Year this year. Really? Yeah. He's that, he's, he's, okay. I, I, I like the looks of him. Duly noted. Um, just real quick. So you mentioned that obviously the, the Europeans have started collecting Ryder Cup points. Yes. There's been this debate going on for a long time within golf that the United States players, players born in the U.S., basically put winning majors above the Ryder Cup. That if you ask them and they were to be honest, which would you rather do, win the U.S. Open, win the Masters, or be a part of a winning Ryder Cup team, they're going to take the individual accomplishment and winning that. And and I don't necessarily say that I wouldn't say the same thing. The um, stereotype has been that the Europeans would say Ryder Cup and being a part of a winning Ryder Cup team is is that number one? Is that stereotype accurate? And number two, we're a year out. I mean, again, like we're in the middle of September, a year away from the Ryder Cup. The, the points have started. Are people already buzzing about Ryder Cup, or are the players aware of points? Is that something? Or when when do they start thinking? Oh, Ryder Cup points. Yeah, I gotta start yeah. getting on that. So, when does well, that happen? Obviously, the players are aware because last week was the start of the points race. I'm not sure the fans are as into it as they will be next year. Mm-hmm. And the players, once the Open comes around and the majors and stuff like that, there's an immediacy to it. Exactly. You know, okay. and, and they'll be jockeying for position. You get a guy like Ian Poulter who who sets his schedule to try and make yep. the Ryder Cup because he doesn't want to give. Um, I wish he didn't. <laughs> he doesn't want to give Patrick Harrington or Thomas Brown last time. Um, the choice of having to pick him. He'd rather make the team. Yep. And so he he gears his whole career around the Ryder Cup. And as you say, he's he's, he's done well. I, he's, he is somebody that has been a thorn in the side of every captain of the Ryder Cup for over a decade. And it's one of the biggest compliments that we can give is that no one wants to see their name on Sunday paired up next to him. But is the stereotype, do you think, still accurate? Or as more players, for example, we've talked about Rom, who was, was fantastic in Paris and was clearly very motivated to play well. But does it mean the same thing to Victor Hovland? Does it mean the same thing to players coming up? Because even I remember when Rory first came out, you yeah. know, and he, he downplayed it. He called it an exhibition match. He he didn't get it, and then of course when they win, yeah. now I get it, and yes. and I apologize, and he sort of said that. But but is the stereotype still? Do yeah. you think? Yeah, accurate? I mean, you have to go back to Savvy Ballesteros made the Ryder Cup. He, I mean, he he put the spirit of Europe into that competition, and. I mean, even last year, there was a, a, a poster of Seve in the, in the European team room. Mm-hmm. His bag was in there. At Glen Eagles, there was a big poster. When he walked through the tunnel up on the first tee, Seve was there. 
and um, that that spirit, that team spirit, um, win the Ryder Cup has continued. The team, the team spirit in Europe is. I've always said this to people: Who would you rather party with, <laughs> a winning U.S. team or a losing European team? I'll take the losing European losing team Euros for every sure every time because I mean the, the camaraderie, camaraderie in the team is absolutely fantastic. So I forget when we were at Royal St. George, 2011. Yes, and I remember there were silhouettes of Seve on some of the the windscreens that were around the grandstands and things, and and it was it was emotional. I mean, yeah. it was it was very fresh in everybody's mind. Do you think that American golf fans? truly appreciate or understand what Seve meant to the European tours and to European golf? No. How would So I have told people, I agree, um, and I don't think that I fully appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to be 49 years old pretty soon, but I remember seeing him, but I don't remember how he would have translated. I had never been to Europe no. you know, until I, I was in my late teens. It didn't mean to me, he was the guy that broke our hearts. Yeah. He was the guy that obviously played with a lot of passion, but to me, he was also the guy that was beating Nicholas and, and was I, I was a Nicholas guy. To me, I've told people, imagine rolling Nicholas and Arnold Palmer into one and with that charisma, and that's what he meant to them. How would you sort of describe or try and get people to understand what Seve meant to European golf? Well, in 1983, Europe lost the Ryder Cup at Palm Beach Gardens by a point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when Seve came in the dressing room, all the European players were hanging their heads. And he actually said to them, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you depressed? This is a great victory. We showed the Americans that we can almost beat them. We can come within a point of beating them. We must celebrate. And that was the spirit he brought to the team. But the man, I mean, the, the charisma in the man and the magnetism of the man, he was, he was bigger than Faldo to English golf fans. When, when he played at Wentworth, he got a bigger following than Faldo, than Lyle, than Woozy, because he was, he was huge. He was, he was almost godlike. To, to British golf fans and European golf fans. Just, just his animal magnetism and his um, exuberance and, and, and just the, the way he played shots. I mean, mm-hmm. to follow him around the golf course, was, it was an adventure, every hole. You have to go to Switzerland, Kranz-Rosier, he hit one of the best shots ever played. He hit, it, he, he hit his ball off the 18th tee against the wall, up against the wall, with a willow tree hanging over, 120 yards from the green, and he hit the ball over the wall, under the willow tree, over a swimming pool, over a stand of trees, under the fringe of the green, and chipped in for birdie. And his caddy was Billy Foster, and Billy was on his knees by the wall saying, no, please, Seve, just chip back to the fairway, chip <laughs> back to the fairway. But that was the guy. He, and the shots he could play was just unbelievable. And people would follow him, hoping he'd go in the trees to see the recovery shots and the, the skill. It was fantastic. How much is, is his legacy and what he meant magnified by the fact that it's passed on and we at least i sort of whenever i see jose Miguel thabo i think of Seve. yeah and, and that may not be fair to him because he was a tremendous player in his own right but they are inextricably linked in, in in golf and then the fact that sergio garcia comes and has early in his career that same sort of charisma yeah. i mean people forget when when he was at medina in 99 and we're watching this 19-year-old kid jump around like, yeah. here comes another one. Yeah. That There has this been this very clear passing of the torch. And I don't know if Rahm is going to have this or not. Well, that's, I think, what, that's what we're going to find out in the Ryder Cup. Yeah. That, he, he will be determined by what he does in the Ryder Cup. Or maybe even in majors too, if he can match Seve's five majors. Is that fair? Close. Well, it, it, you know, I mean, it is what it is. He's exactly. Spanish and he's really good. So he's going to get the comparison. Exactly. But it may not be 100% fair to do. How does he handle it, do you think? 
Well, he's got broad shoulders. <laughs> Very powerful. He's got, he's got broad shoulders. Um, yeah, that's. I I think he can handle it. Um, I think he's going to be a well, as you would say over here, a stud I, for Europe. I think the world of John Rahm. I think that when he gets to figure out how not to be loco in the cabeza. Yes. And but Sergio has a problem with, and he had a problem with that this year. Sergio's had a lot of problems yes. with that. What? Yeah. How has his sort of place in the golf world changed over the last year or two? Because mm. it's it's not been good here. Yeah, he, he can be looked at as something of a brat yeah. uh, by British European golf fans. Um, I think where, it's fair. Whereas Seve wasn't. You know, Seve was always fighting for a cause, Yep. almost always had to have a cause to fight for, whether it was the Ryder Cup or appearance money um, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, playing uh, privileges in America, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas Sergio um, comes across as spoiled. He did this year in Saudi Arabia when he damaged the Queens. That was bad, that, very bad. It's it's been it's been pretty rough to see what Garcia has done the last eighteen months. I yeah. mean, it seems like he this is a pattern that we've established that he behaves like a child. That he hasn't been punished, in my opinion, enough or yeah. harshly enough. He gets you know a scolding for a day or two on social media, and then he goes on a a make good campaign, yeah. kissing babies and doing all these wonderful things, and gets his. Yeah. He and his wife basically take to social media to see, like, what a wonderful guy I am. And yeah. then, wait, three, two, one. There's the next incidence where he's behaving like a total jerk. And, exactly. And, um, and Ram's got a bit of a fuse to him as well. Yeah. Right? And he has to watch. I don't. Hopefully he won't go the same way as, as, Sir, as Sergio has. But he has to watch not losing it because he's going to lose a lot of respect if he does that. His talent, to me, is just frighteningly good. Yeah. I mean, I watch him hit a golf ball, and his swing is his own swing. It's so compact on the backswing. He's almost he's into his follow-through before he finishes yeah. taking the club back. Yeah. He's got so much power, and, then, and he putts better than people think. He can be streaky, but he, he on, the, on the whole, is, is a much better putter than people give him credit for. He has got so much power. Yeah, that I drive mean, at Wentworth, I've played that course many times, and up the first, that's, I mean, that's colossal. So it's just colossal. one of the things before we uh, go back to events, we're here obviously at a Golf Week uh, event. We're planning out our 2020 coverage for GolfWeek.com and, and Golf Week magazine. And uh, there's wine that needs to be consumed, and it's been a long <laughs> day for us. But um, the European Tour has been so much more proactive about slow play than the U.S. Tour. And this year, obviously, with Brooks Kepka and, and Rory and some other players calling out slow play on the U.S. PGA Tour, it, it seems like, once again... We're, we're talking about this topic, and we've, we talk about it you know, pretty much. It, it becomes the issue about once every 12 to 18 months, and then it goes in the background. Explain to people who may not be aware what the European Tour has done to try and encourage quicker play, or at least not slow play. What, what has been going on over the last few years? Right, so um, Eduardo Molinari was the guy that kicked this off this year. He actually played in Morocco, took five and a half hours, and tweeted about it. And five said, and a and half said, Five and a half hours. hours. And he said, enough is enough. And then what he did, he went beyond that. He went to the British Masters, went into the tournament office, took a picture of perennial slow players because they published this stuff. We used to sneak in you know, 10, 15 years ago when we could get in the tournament office and write down the offenders and then write about it. Now they don't let us in, but the players can go in. And he tweeted a picture of the offenders, the guys, mm-hmm. that, get, the guys that get bad times. And the, the European – I spoke to Pelle about this, and he said, we're, we're going to do something because it's, it's got to stop. Mm-hmm. So th- they're going to get harsher on uh, the slow coaches. Uh, one, of the things, one of the good things they're going to do is they're going to do a kind of time par. So when you get to a tee that will show you where, where you should be, how far behind you are, how far, hopefully how far ahead you are, and they're going to, they're going to uh, target the slow players and f- – find them and penalize them quicker, stroke penalties. But, you know, there's a commercial aspect to this too. 
you know, if, if a lot of European te- tour events, they pay appearance money, mm-hmm. right? So Abu Dhabi, the, the Middle East ones, Saudi Arabia, Dubai. Some of the right. Asian stuff? I mean, some of the guys have got to be picking yeah, up some yeah, of those things in right. Malaysia and so China. The problem you had, Jordan Spieth played in Abu Dhabi a few years ago and he got a bad time and he hasn't been back. <laughs> so there's going to be, there could be a clash between sponsors and the tour implementing this policy because they don't want their, the guys, the star attractions mm-hmm. picking up penalties. But hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, they're going to get on top of it because it's it's ridiculous. Absolutely. It was the same last week at Wentworth. Ridiculous. And they were and they sort of trialed it there. So I'm not fully convinced. Well, and you were at the Solheim Cup. Uh, the Solheim Cup was, it was turgid. The Slowheim Cup. Yes. The Slowheim Cup, let's call it. Yeah. And um, so I love tennis. It was the first game that I played is my youth. I played college tennis um, yeah. to see that tennis will penalize players and there is not on the, on the biggest stages. I mean, the last two U S opens Serena Williams gets called out for coaching. I mean, we're talking about the, probably the greatest female, you know, not just tennis player, perhaps athlete, female athlete, athlete yeah. ever. Um, it gets nailed with a coaching penalty and she was coaching. She was being coached. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah. She goes ballistic and that whole incident takes place this year. Rafael Nadal, yeah. slow play. Yeah. Bang. So the whole concept is, is our coworker, and colleague and friend Eamon Lynch wrote on GolfWeek.com a couple weeks ago, they certainly don't have a problem slapping Hall of Famers with these penalties. Why? What do you think? What is the reluctance? Is it is it the sponsors? Why, why is golf afraid to call out the people who, who are the problem? I don't know. I think they, they don't want an image problem. They don't want to kind of... Um, they don't want bad news, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, y- you've got situations at the Solheim Cup, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Friday, Saturday, it's four matches each session, and you've got an official with a stopwatch standing watching them act like snails and doing nothing about it. And I've been out arguing for what, 25 years for a shot clock. Mm-hmm. Why can't we have a shot clock in golf? Um, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, whatever the time is, yeah. as soon as you get over that time, and, you know, referees can use their common sense if there's a, a bad situation, somebody's hurt or blah, 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 they need a ruling. But 50 seconds, say, and that's it, one-shot penalty. They need to do it because the, the, the other commercial aspect to it is if, if, if spectators are not going to golf tournaments or turning off TVs, that's who's going to sponsor tournaments yeah, that's when it becomes a problem because on television it doesn't appear to be as much a problem because you can skip yes. between groups while one guy is taking forever to line up a putt you can bang over to here you can go over to yeah. here we can we can do and and but when you're out there it's glacial yeah. and i understand sometimes when the money is on the line and it's you know the 15th hole on sunday at a major championship i don't have as much of a problem with yeah. guys taking their time because now you're playing for immortality you're you're playing for yeah. history yeah. thursday afternoon yeah. You know, at the uh, at the Meatloaf Mountain National, yeah. I, I want to see guys pick up the pace a little bit. Um, exactly, and with slow it's, play, it's always the fast players who are affected. Well, yeah, because they're taking out of their game rhythmically. If you're paired with somebody who's slow, yeah. um, we were at Northern Trust, and Tiger Woods was asked about slow play, and Kepka and Rory have been talking a lot about slow play and trying to get guys out. And he said that when some guys, he didn't name names, of course, when they see that they get paired on Thursday and Friday with somebody who's known to be slow they will intentionally play slow at the beginning to get themselves on the clock to quicken up the slow poke, which is ridiculous that an athlete should have to change their game to compensate for what their opponents and their their playing partners are doing. It's it's not fair. Eddie Pepperell played in a European tour event this year, and he played with two slow pokes, um, Paul Dunn, Patrick Harrington. Mm -hmm. And he put a tweet out, and he said, two things are going to happen today. 
They're going to chip me off the golf course, and we're going to be on the clock. So the thing is, it's it's like your golf club, my golf club, anybody listening to this, everybody knows the slow players. Of course. And you avoid them like the plague. You don't play in championships with them or uh, club championships, club medals, blah, blah, blah. It's the same on the tour. They all know who the slow pokes are. Yeah. So there's no problem. Just do something about it. Hand out If you start handing out one-shot penalties, they'll soon quicken up. But for some reason, there's just they don't seem to have the bottle or the guts to do something about it. Or which is, which is unfortunate because, like, once once you take the leap and just go through that, it's almost like ripping off the bandaid. Like, once we get through that initial part, it's done, and then everybody knows the deal, and the problem eventually gets solved much more quickly than it would be if we keep prolonging this exercise and in, in doing this. Five hours and fifty minutes for a four ball at Glen Eagles during the Solheim Cup. That's insane. I, I worked for Golf Monthly magazine, and it's been going since 1911. And I used to read the back issues. And readers would write in complaining about rounds taking longer than three hours. Yeah. And we're close to the six-hour mark. And, and the thing, going back to the commercial aspect, if the game's too slow, how are kids going to get involved? Now? Well, I can tell you that Charlie Dusek, who just turned 15 today, happy birthday, buddy, um, one of the challenges for me to get him involved is that it takes too long. Yeah. The, the, I mean, there's lots of things with, with getting you. We yeah. can, that's a yeah. whole other podcast. Yeah. But if, if a round of golf and watching your favorite players – takes five hours and kids are sitting there banging on their phones on Instagram and Snapchat and they're doing other things that are give them that endorphin rush much more quickly and much more often, you don't stand a chance. They were at the Solheim Cup. I saw them. I saw kids sitting there bored, bored yeah. rigid because there was, no, there was no players coming through. Yeah. And so, you know, if, even, even if we get back to what, what I would consider normal, four hours, acceptable, four mm-hmm. hours for a four ball, that's still too long for kids. It's the society is changing, and that's one of the challenges that golf yeah. is going to have to handle, not just on the slow play front. Yeah. There, I mean, that's a different podcast. But one of the things to wrap up here that I want to talk with you about was we were walking over here. Um, we were walking with a colleague, and she was unaware of dogs and the special place that dogs hold in the UK. I knew it a little bit, but but your dog accompanies you when you play golf on occasion. Is this is this no, not true? No, no, not not on occasion. Always? On a regular basis. The only, the only stipulation at my club is if it's a competition, she can't play. Okay. She but, can't play. Well, she, well, I, I play. <laughs> How's her short game? <laughs> better, better than mine, I'll tell you that. Well, let's not well, say, say she but... plays off scratch. But anyway. Oh, um, yeah. thank you. If, I, if I'm not traveling, I'll try and play twice a week. Mm-hmm. And she plays me twice a week. Type of dog? She's a black she? lab. Oh. And I was telling the, our colleague that if you go, my, my friend's the pro at the Berkshire, traditional old club mm-hmm. west of London, often you'll see four golfers and four dogs walking down the fairway and I once asked the, the captain of the club I said what would the members do if they banned dogs from the golf course you know what his response was hmm. why on earth would we do that see because <laughs> I remember the first so the first time I played St. Andrews I was there in 2006 I went over after the Open Championship at Royal Liverpool um, and I had a chance to play I got in I went in the lineup I showed up there at about 5.30 in the morning queued up Got out on the golf course at about 2 in the afternoon, and uh, it was swelteringly hot. I mean, you remember it was just yeah. – you know, the whole British Isles were just baked out baked, yeah. at, at that point. Um, coming down 18, and there were – I counted four dogs just running across the 18th and the first fairways, playing their owners, basically tossing a little ball. And it's Parkland. It's, well, that's, that's public land, so they might have been walking their dogs. Well, I, they, right. two, of, two of them were little Scotties, and I, and I actually ended up knowing the owner. It was George Pepper yeah. was, was, was walking his little white Scotties yes. and, and recognized me, and we said hello, which is a surreal moment. Yeah. But, but just to see it, it's, it's a really strange. And I, I would wonder, 
maybe not on play, but how often people have an opportunity to do that and how much they would love to. Because I know people in the golf industry who have dogs yeah. who love them more yeah. than their children. Well, <laughs> it, but it kills two birds with one stone. If I'm working at home, and let's say I worked all morning and I've got to take the dog for a walk, I'll take her for nine holes. Mm-hmm. So I get to play golf and she gets a walk. And it's, it's perfectly normal. Most clubs in the British Isles are like that. You can take your dog. Now, have, you tra- have you trained her to use the loo? Uh, yeah, well, I've, I, you obviously have a have a bag to pick up the something. stuff. Something. I was just, yeah. just yeah, I'm just thinking about like you know yes. some of the hazards. Were there enough hazards in golf? We don't need that as a hazard. And th- that was the problem I had with her. the first time I took her. She got in the bunker on the sixth hole, with part uh-huh. three, and she ran around this bunker for about five minutes like it was a big wall of death. No. Puppy heaven. And it took me 50 minutes to rake the damn thing. <laughs> but, but once I told her off, and now if, if I'm if, if she's between me, if the bunker between me and her, she'll actually walk around the bunker. Here's a better story. Yeah. Paul McGinley had a dog, Phoebe, that he took to Sunningdale. And Paul McGinley trained his dog to stay off the greens. Wow, that's impressive. Well, I never thought of that because I thought, well, grass is grass, but I could keep her out the bunkers. So McGinley took her down to the first green at Sunningdale. He stopped before the green. He told Phoebe to sit. Paul walked around the green to the other side and called the dog. And the dog ran over, naturally ran over the green. Of course. And he took the dog back around the green, around the putting surface, sat her down again, called her, and she ran across the green. He did it a third time around the green, took her back around, called the dog, and she walked around the green. It took three goals, and she was trained. She's like the Einstein of dogs. Well, and I'm wish i I'm pretty sure if I'd taught my dog the same thing, if I'd had the, the brains to think of that, um, she would have done the same thing. So McGinley would go and play golf, and Phoebe would sit before the green. Mm-hmm. When he was finished, she would get up, walk to the next day around the green. So it's, it's perfectly normal. It's having a dog playing golf in, in Britain. Yeah, it's your if they uh, say. If people want to follow you on social media, how can they do it? Uh, at Golf Week Tate. At Golf Week Tate. All is one word? No, all, all one word. Perfect. And, and where are you off to after you leave sunny Orlando? Where are you off to next? I've got a few weeks off, and I'm going to the DP World Tour Championship. That's my final event of the year. That sounds like a good way to end the year. Yeah. Alistair, thank you very much, buddy. I appreciate Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. My first podcast. Loved it. And it didn't hurt a bit. Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs>